ops, and a little bit of paranoia. Welcome to the Iron Sysadmin Podcast. Hello, folks, and welcome to this afternoon's episode of the Iron Sysadmin Podcast. You heard that right. We're recording at 3 p.m. tonight instead of, or today, instead of an usual evening uh, hours to, uh, to help accommodate our special guest for today. I'm joined, as usual, by two of our co-hosts, Jason and Mark. Say hi. Day drinking. I, I can't believe win. you woke me up this early. Hey, <laughs> woke poor Jason up before before 7 p.m. Is that a problem? <laughs> and, of course, our special guest, Rich Bowen. Rich, you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks for having me, and thanks for accommodating my schedule. Um, I am Rich Bowen, and I'm currently working as the community manager for the CentOS project in the open source program office at Red Hat. Uh, I've been at Red Hat for eight years this week. Wow, and, congrats. Uh, yeah, and uh, I've been I've been working with the CentOS project for about three years. Before that, I was, I was the OpenStack community manager. Oh. Um, but uh, I've been doing open source type things for around 20 years, mostly around the Apache Software Foundation. But uh, yeah, what else do you want to know? Cool. So um, OpenStack before this, huh? I didn't even know that. That's good to know. We've had, um, I, I've I've had my own interest in OpenStack for a while, and uh, a previous coworker of mine, John Fulton, also works mm -hmm. at Red Hat, and we've had him on the show once or twice to talk about OpenStack. Though he hasn't been back in a while. Maybe we'll have to bring him back on again. But uh, yeah. Cool. Yeah, OpenStack was a good community to work with. They, uh, they're good people there. Yeah, yeah. Looks like a pretty interesting community. All right. So, uh, if if you guys haven't guessed, we've we've got Rich on to talk about CentOS, right? Um, however, I'm going to preface this with one statement. Rich has been asked a thousand times <laughs> about the announcement from what was it two months ago now? Oh, We're it's been almost six months now. Has it been that long? I guess it, it has. was. It was December eighth. I guess time flies can, when you're. We can in make a it a thousand and one. We're not making it a thousand and one. Yeah, we're not going to make it a thousand and one. So if you tuned in to try to tune into the flame of of uh, you know the announcement from last, I guess late last year. Now I'm I'm losing track of time. Uh, that's not going to be this episode. We're going to try not to touch on that too much. There's probably a hundred other places you can go see Rich's comments on that. Instead, we're going to focus on the future, right? Uh, but I do have one burning question that's a little loaded and is probably going to spark endless flame wars. Um, like many things that are born in a text world, like the internet, uh, I've heard so many different ways of pronouncing the name <laughs> of the CentOS project. And I'm curious, is it CentOS? Is it CentOS? Or is it CentOS? It or doesn't it matter? Most, it most definitely is. And uh, I actually did a, a a thing on Twitter last year called hashtag I say CentOS and had people send in <laughs> videos of themselves saying it. And, uh, you know, one of the funny things is, like you say, because it was born in a text world, it was years before the lead developers met one another and they all said right. it differently. So we <laughs> so have I miss, I we missed have, the definitive pronunciation. Uh, right. So did we all. I don't think and there is one. So there's there's CentOS and CentOS and CentOS, and uh, Jim Perrin actually just says Cent. So it uh, and and I find myself saying it three or four different ways within one conversation. I don't even well, know how I say it. 
I've we, I've we, done that myself. Yeah, we can't even get people at Red Hat to be consistent with how they capitalize or space the word Red Hat. That's so right. I yeah. feel your pain there. Yeah. So I like to ask questions when I'm doing interviews for this community that Nate and I are both part of inside of Red Hat. Uh, so I'm going to ask you a similar question that I asked the new the new folk who are trying to get in that. What's your what's your story like? What's your open source story? How did you get involved in Linux or an open source? Was it something that you did as a kid? Was it in the was it like a career shift for you? Was it at school? Like, how how'd you get how'd you get here today? And what what's your humble origin story? Well, it's, were it's, there any radioactive insects involved? It, well, strange that you would mention that. I did major in uh, in nuclear physics in college, and we did have a, a plutonium Baller. sample down in the basement, which was a lot nice. of fun to play with. But uh, we, we were one of the the only remaining private schools, or uh, you know, private's not the right word there, but but uh, you know, as opposed to a public university, uh, state school that that had a plutonium sample at that time. This is ninety ninety two, but anyway. Um, I got interested in programming when I was in middle school. Um, Apple IIe, uh, Commodore 64, and my, my parents had a uh, Atari 800XL that they got to write their PhD dissertation on. And that had basic, um, Atari basic was what came up when you turned it on. And so I was tinkering with that some. But then much later, um, I guess I was in in graduate school, the uh, the NCSA web server became a thing. So mm -hmm. 1989, 1990, it may be a little bit later. I, the timeline's a little fuzzy to me. But uh, the Apache web server project started right when I got my first job. And this, this web thing was new. And my employer said, we need a website. And I said, I'll do it. And so I started trying to put together the website. And it was it was in it was in late '94, right when the Apache web server made its 09, uh, 0.9 release, and we were trying to transition from NCSA to Apache, and the documentation was awful, um, and I complained on the mailing list that the documentation was awful, and um, someone who's who's now a friend of mine, Jim Jim Jagilski, said. So fix it. And uh, <laughs> somehow I guess that's where that conversation was going. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, this was this was a new concept to me that I could go in there and fix it. And so when you read the Apache web server documentation today, a large percentage of that I, I wrote or was involved in the team that made later updates to that. Um, I also had a lot of... Uh, I, I did a lot of uh, CGI programming in Perl as part of that website and got very involved in the Perl community and later the PHP community. And uh, then, you know, many, many years later, I uh, worked at SourceForge. I was the community manager at SourceForge, which was just, just an amazing experience because whatever business decision SourceForge made over the years that, you know, not really going to talk about that, but the communities, the projects that were hosted there, lots of brilliant, passionate people doing interesting projects, doing weird projects. And there were, th there were, you know, a couple thousand of these projects and being the community manager there meant that every day I got to work with a different open source project. And that was just so cool. Um, uh, you know, go, going back to 
1999 or 2000, I guess, I started working on ApacheCon, which is Apache's uh, big annual conference. And uh, I still do that today. Um, so I'm working on planning this year's conference now. And so I've, I've stayed engaged with the Apache Software Foundation, served on the board there for a few years. And uh, so, yeah, that's kind of the, the high level story. Yeah. And started here at Red Hat eight years ago um, to, to work as community manager on Red Hat's presence in the OpenStack project. And uh, just love it at Red Hat. Hope to stay here a while. So that two more years to the puck. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, I've, I've got, uh, I got this one. So Mark just recently got that one. I've got I a did. bit to go. <laughs> so I guess that, that actually brings me to, to the next thing I really wanted to, to ask. And I, I kind of have a vague understanding of this already, but just for the sake of our listeners, what exactly does it mean to be a community manager, whether it's for OpenStack or CentOS or, or even when you were at SourceForge or well, CentOS if, or CentOS? If you find out, you should, you should definitely let me know. No, seriously, um, <laughs> being a community manager is doing what the community needs you to do. And so that varies enormously from one project to another. Um, in the before times, I spent a significant portion of my time planning and going to in-person events to you know, promote CentOS, to promote uh, contributing to the community, to be there to answer questions. And so I spent a lot of my time traveling to those events. This year has, of course, been weird, um, but I also work with the board of directors um, on governance issues, on the, uh, the code of conduct enforcement, um, being a liaison between the project and Red Hat Legal when necessary, being the person that manages our social media presence is another big part of it, writing the, the monthly newsletter generally being the face of our communications to the world. And so back in December, when we made our very unpopular announcement, I was the face of that announcement to our community and the recipient of the consequent uh, fallout from that. Uh, so, so yeah, the last six months have been kind of stressful, but overall being a community manager is just great because you're dealing with people that are, I, I've often said that, a, a measure of success of a software project is that it is used in ways that you never intended. And this is, this is something that you see in open source all the time, people taking and twisting your, your project into their weird and evil implementations. And CentOS is no exception to this. So I get to interact with people that are using what we work on to do all sorts of crazy things from the ones that you've heard about, like running CERN to the people that are running tiny family websites or running a weather station in the Sahara desert or whatever, all of these things that, that are just so cool to see people doing this that you never imagined when you put together the software to begin with. So let's pull the camera back a little bit because if I'm Joey bag of donuts like I've got my PlayStation, I've got my personal computer, whatever. I buy software, right? Or I download something from a website, but I'm generally interacting with a company. So how important are communities really? 
and and some of us might know the answer to this, but for the benefit of our listeners, like how big of a deal is it to have a community around a software? That sounds almost like, are they like a fan club of the software? Is it like I'm, I, I own a Ford, so I have the Calvin bumper sticker with him pissing on the Chevy logo. So I'm now in the <laughs> Ford community or like is it something deeper. Yeah, and, and when you when you look at community manager jobs in the rest of the world, they do tend to be that. They do tend to be um, fan clubs for the most part. But in in open source software, there is of course a large portion of that people that are that are users. I shouldn't say just users because the users are pretty critical to what we do. Without having the feedback from the users, we would have no idea whether we were successful. But the other aspect of it is actually contributing to the making of the product. And the CentOS project, there, you see, I just said it differently. Yep. Um, the You're CentOS project, the CentOS project has traditionally been very much a consumer community because the CentOS project just rebuilds what Red Hat Linux produces, Red Hat Enterprise Linux. We rebuild it. We release it, people use it, and they tell us about their experience. And that telling us that communication is very important to that. With the new focus on CentOS Stream, we actually are building a contributor community that are developing patches to this to CentOS Linux, CentOS Stream itself, and also building things that run on top of it, like, for example, OpenStack, which is where I got started in this particular ecosystem. And so we have people that are developing uh, storage as a service solutions on top of CentOS that then can be deployed on Red Hat Enterprise Linux or Rocky or Alma or Oracle Linux or whatever other rebuild people choose to use. Cool. And I, I, I got to be honest, right? So I, I started with Red Hat Linux back in the late 90s before yep. Red Hat Enterprise Linux yep, existed. And when when Rail came about, of course, I switched to Fedora yeah. right? because I was a broke kid and couldn't afford to be paying for Red Hat Enterprise Linux. And I had no business, really. I had no need for an enterprise-grade Linux. But then when I got into sort of really starting my career and I was able to start making decisions on what operating systems we were running on servers, um, CentOS was what I found, right? Yeah. I had sort of lost track of what happened with Enterprise Linux because... It just had no bearing on my life at the time, right? And then sure. I found CentOS at like 4.0, I think it was, or 4.x. And that's when I started running CentOS professionally. And that was definitely a gateway into, into Red Hat Linux, right? So eventually I got a job where they were, you know, they had a, a, a huge deployment of Red Hat Enterprise Linux. And CentOS really prepared me for that because it's yeah. practically identical, right? So, yeah, uh, and and you know cynically, that's that's why Red Hat is so engaged in upstream projects because when you build a user community, they're more likely to stay within your particular ecosystem. Right. And so, you know, there's there's more to it than that, but but that's certainly one of the reasons that Red Hat invests in these upstream communities. Right. So, <clears throat> let's see where to go next then. Right. So I guess we may as well just jump right into the stream, as it were. Right. All right. Uh, we've talked a bit about, you know, the announcement and CentOS stream and, you know, where it's now positioned in the lifecycle. Um, so I don't know if we really need to rehash all of that unless it's relevant to the conversation. 
but um, I guess what I'd like to kind of cover is how does stream really differ from, you know, sort of the old CentOS model? And, you know, why, why is that a good or, I guess, or bad thing? Right? Sure. Um, and, and, you know, getting the, the elephant in the room, first of all, the reason that, that people were upset by this announcement is that we, the, the community had an understanding of what CentOS meant. It, it meant a particular thing and it meant a particular window of support time and it meant a certain promise of stability. And we changed those things with this announcement without any warning. And so people, you know, I, we definitely understand why people were upset with this. Um, what we hear from the world at large is that everybody seems to agree that CentOS Stream is a great thing. What they yeah. disagree on is what we did with CentOS Linux. And, you know, again, I don't want to dwell on that because I've already given a dozen interviews about that, right. which you can watch on my YouTube channel. But uh, <laughs> um, but CentOS Stream creates for both CentOS itself and for Red Hat Enterprise Linux a contribution model, which we really did not have before. In the old days, long, long ago, six months ago, the way to get a change into RHEL or into CentOS itself was to make that change in Fedora and cross your fingers and wait three years yep. and maybe or get five. lucky or five or maybe, you know, maybe two releases depending. And uh, that was very dissatisfying to anyone who has ever tried to do it. Um, the other way to get a change into RHEL is to be a customer and badger your salespeople who then badger engineering and try to make something happen. And they will say, put it in Fedora and wait three years. Um, what we have with, with CentOS Stream is the ability to put a pull request directly into CentOS Stream itself and have that appear in the next dot version of Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Now, I want to clarify something that I think that there's some misunderstanding about, which is what can go into RHEL. Um, the way that we make RHEL is we take a release version of Fedora and we stick with it. And that becomes RHEL with minor changes. And by minor changes, I mean bug fixes and security patches for the most part. There's not new functionality. Major new functionality goes into RHEL. There's no major changes in behavior that go into RHEL. And so when we say that we're accepting contributions into CentOS Stream, it's the same model. These are, these are minor changes, bug fixes, security patches, um, minor tweaks. And so the notion that CentOS Stream is somehow this bleeding edge, unstable thing just reflects a misunderstanding, a miscommunication of how the RHEL process works to begin with. But uh, so, so what we've done with CentOS Stream is move it from slightly after RHEL to slightly before RHEL. And so now rather than getting uh, an enormous new change every six months, you get a trickle of changes constantly. Uh, so is this good or bad? Well, it depends on your use case. Um, for a large percentage of users that were using CentOS Linux in whatever application, you, you switch over to CentOS Stream and it keeps working. 
Um, I switched all of my home servers and my web servers and whatever to CentOS Stream about a year and a half ago. And I often forget that I have done so uh, because the difference between the two is small. On the other hand, if you live and die by absolute stability, if you're running, say, weird third-party drivers, these are situations where CentOS Stream might not be the right solution for you, and you might want to look at, at Alma Linux instead that, that has the old CentOS Linux model. Um, so, yeah, I'd say that for the, for the majority of people, the change is not significant. What we did, though, was make the change in a way that lost a lot of community goodwill. And that will forever taint the story. Well, hopefully not forever, but currently that taints the story. And, and my job is to regain that trust. Um, our job is to make CentOS stream amazing so that people trust it. But, but more than that, they need to trust us. And right. so back to your earlier question, that's who I am as the community manager. I'm supposed to be building trust and, and hopefully I'm, I'm doing that. How's that going? And that's not me being a smart. Sure. Like, how, how's the how's the temperature in the CentOS community nowadays? Well, when I so we made the announcement uh, December 8th and I took off for Christmas break the end of the next week. And I, so I was off for three weeks straight. And when I came back, I read that that three weeks worth of email back to back. And at the beginning, there were uh, there was a lot of hatred. There was a lot of real anger, real rage, and a few death threats. Um, but <laughs> which the I internet can, is a great place. <laughs> right. So I can laugh about that in retrospect. But at the time, you know, it was really upsetting, uh, extremely demoralizing. But as I read that email, people started understanding the message better. And, you know, there was still anger. There was still disappointment. There was still, I'm going to go do something else because you burned my trust. But the the, the hatred and the vitriol went away. So now, almost six months later, um, we see the story in the press is much more accurate and not tainted with all of the vitriol. We see people getting the message. Um, I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago with some folks from the Rocky Linux project, and they were talking about how CentOS Stream is, is a, a good thing technically, and that Rocky Linux exists to fill some of that trust gap. And that's that's really kind of where we are right now. So I think it's going well, but I think we still have some work ahead of us. Yeah. Yeah. I remember some of those early articles. I mean, from like legitimate trusted tech news sources yeah. that were just absolutely not just scathing, but seemed wrong. Right. They, they didn't seem like they had the facts straight. Sure. And some that's... of that's some of that's on us for for our messaging. Yeah. But I think that most of it is directly related to the feeling of betrayal that that lends a tone to how you write about it. And again, right. we understand that, that it, it makes sense. Right. All right. So I since the beginning of this, like since I read the announcement and since I started seeing some of the backlash, I've I've sort of kept this stance where I feel like CentOS Stream if managed in the right way, can really be almost identical to the old CentOS model. Not, not from a way it's the way it's produced or the way that even maybe even in the way it's traditionally consumed. But if you do things where you're, you know, creating your own software mirror, mm -hmm. say managing it with something like satellite or Catello if you're doing all upstream yeah. stuff, 
uh, you can still get the stability and the version control and whatnot that you may have felt like you had with the old version or the old model of CentOS, you know, the old CentOS 7 and 8 model. Um, am I off base on that or does that sound like it makes sense to you? I, I haven't no, run stream myself, right? So that that's definitely what what some of our users are doing. Um, so we've got we've got folks at at uh, Facebook that are doing exactly that. They're deploying CentOS Stream on their hundreds of thousands of servers, but they're doing it exactly the way that you're talking about, where they will um, they'll they'll manage what packages go out to their servers, and in a sense have an internal versioning. Um, we also hear the same from the scientific community, and there, you know, when when you're doing um, when you're doing multi-million dollar ex experiments, you want to make sure that you can reproduce them exactly. And part of that, part of your lab equipment, you might say, is the the machines that are doing the analytics. And you want to make sure that they're all on exactly the same version of everything, so that your results are comparable and repeatable. And so the folks at like the folks at CERN, they're doing the same sort of thing where they're carefully managing what they roll out to their servers. So I come from pharmacy, from big pharma. And then I want Jason to give his aspect because not to spoil the story, he's a former CentOS user. And I'd kind of like you two to have a little uh, friendly discussion about that. Sure. But I remember it like I challenge people. I'm like, yeah, you think you're running RHEL 7.9, but... I guarantee that there's a bajillion different iterations of what RHEL 7.9 sure. is because there's launch day 7.9, there's yeah. first errata, second errata, third errata. So I don't think people have this consistent, air quote, stable platform that they really believe they have most of the time. That's, that's certainly unless, true. Unless they use, like, again, I'm, I'm a platform TAM, big in a satellite. So if you, you have a versioned content view, you can use that same methodology regardless of what your OS is, whether it's the classic RHEL, uh, old school CentOS or CentOS Stream. I think, I think what we get hung up on is this whole idea of production. And I'm just going to put a fun little Git, uh, Git entry into the Twitch chat. This is about actually AWX, which is the upstream to tower. Mm -hmm. But there's some hilarity in there because you've got a user complaining about AWX using alpha or experimental software. And the project guys are like, look, AWS is where all the is where all the uh the new stuff happens, where we experiment. It's not going to be production level or stable. So I think I think there's some some responsibility on the users to really understand when they say production, they need to know what does production mean to them, right? Right. Um as a as a uh, CentOS guy, I'm not allowed to use the word production, so I, I don't know what production is. But but seriously, um, one of the things that that's fascinating about being at Red Hat is this tension between the upstream and the product. And if if you ask me whether you should use CentOS in production, and you ask our salespeople, you'll get you'll get contradictory answers. And that's part of our DNA as a company. Um, I absolutely think you should be using open source projects in in production because it it helps the project strengthen itself and and get the features in that it needs. And uh, I also really like getting a paycheck. 
So that that tension very much defines our company. So that I mean that I mean, we've sort of already touched on it, I suppose, and maybe you can you can sort of gather your own um, answer based on the conversation thus far. But I mean, in your opinion, and I, I probably know the answer already, um, is CentOS Stream really any less viable? for the quote-unquote production workloads that people were using or people maybe still are using CentOS 7 or 8 for? And, you know, I don't want to be at all dismissive of people who have found it not to be so. Yeah. But the majority of anecdotal evidence that I have from people that are using it is that they can't really tell the difference in most works, in most use cases. Yeah, I mean that's that's basically what I've heard from from folks that have touched stream. I meant to do it sometime before we did this show, and I didn't get a chance to stand up a CentOS stream system just to get my own hands-on experience. But I get the feeling that it would be just uh, it would feel just like CentOS, right? It, it does, and I mean if, if if you've been around Linux for a while, Linux is Linux. But but obviously there are there are situations where it's not, and. Uh, you know, those those are the ones that the project wants to hear about because our position is that if you try to run something on CentOS Stream that you know works on RHEL and doesn't work for you on CentOS Stream, that's a bug. Right. And, and we need to fix that. it. We want to hear about it. Yeah. It is our it is our stated purpose that if something goes into CentOS Stream, we expect to release it in RHEL. And that's that's our entire development model for RHEL 9. Um, you know, that said, RHEL 9 hasn't released yet and you can use CentOS Stream 9 today. And, and so the comparison as to whether they're the same thing doesn't mean anything right now. Right. But uh, once that RHEL 9.0 comes out, uh, Stream 9 and RHEL 9 are intended to be the same thing. And, you know, it gets back to to our business model we don't sell software. Red Hat doesn't sell software. What we sell is the support and integration and ecosystem around that software and the person that you can call on the phone and help you through it. So the fact that those two things are the same doesn't undermine our business model. We don't sell the bits. The bits aren't what's important. What's important is the relationship. And I am not a salesperson, so I'll stop there. <laughs> so Jason, what's your story here? Because I think you my I'd story. Like to, I'd like to hear it. Yeah, I mean, you because we feel so, like we're cheerleading a little bit. Yeah, you've you've no, been a CentOS user for easily as long as or longer than me. So I am I am really yeah. especially as an external right, not a, not a red hatter. Like what? You got any burning questions? <laughs> I, nothing really burning. I, I I have I, I mean to be to be honest, I haven't had a chance to touch it. Um, yeah. you know, we were. We were on track. Uh, I have I have lots of side projects, and one of those side projects, <clears throat> um, we we're building these servers that that needed to have. You know, we were looking for, hoping to use RHEL, like a, a RHEL variant, and CentOS was that that variant. And once once CentOS Stream announced, and you know all that happened, um, you know we kind of went, looked at it, and said, "Crap, we don't know." what this is or, or how this is mm -hmm. going to work out. And it's not, it's not a, uh, a rel equivalent anymore based on the way we were reading it. So, you know, those are running Debian now because I needed something stable and solid that I can, I know what's coming in each version. Um, 
you know, hearing this, I'll probably look at Centos stream, but I think, I think even so for, cause this is a, uh, uh, this is an appliance that, that goes out to lots of different places. Um, so we need to have the same version everywhere. So something like CentOS stream sounds like we'd have to put a bunch of tooling around it to make sure that we were doing that and having that, that same version everywhere, uh, versus being able to use, you know, the sort of the built-in stuff, um, and, and get the, the, the same version everywhere. So I think it's just a different use case. Um, it makes sense. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, I don't know. I think of it as the same thing that Fedora was, but closer to the metal. So, you know, CentOS streams is, is what rel, you know, what the packages are that are going to make it into rel next. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it may be a little unstable to start, but that's okay. We'll get there. And, you know, I, I don't think I'll get fired for saying this. You might also look at, at Alma Linux and, uh, we're, we have a, a good relationship with that project and they consider us an upstream and we consider them a downstream. And so we're, we're really interested in building that relationship with them. Um, because at the end of the day, it's, it's about giving our users something to, to build their reality is around and, and we want something that works and we want people to use the things that we produce. So, yeah, I, I, I'll look at all my, I had never heard of them before. Um, and, and I'll probably turn back to CentOS. I, I have a server that I've been running here for a number of years that, um, was running atomic Linux, uh, which oh, yeah. is also ripped out from under me. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's, that's also dead in the water. Uh, so I got to figure out what to do with that. You know, on one hand I can go to core um, if I, you know, want to lose more hair or I can switch over to something like CentOS streams and, and that may be where I do it. So we'll see. I think you've already lost the battle on, uh, airline oh, hair. So I don't think you need to worry about that. <laughs> I said more, but thanks. <laughs> All right. So one relevant question I see, not that there's not that the other questions aren't great, but I, one that's kind of standing out here in our chat, uh, came from one of our relatively recent uh, listeners. He's he's kind of new in the uh, sort of the IT world. Uh, it goes by Aranami. Um, he says, as a rather as a rather new and yeah rather inexperienced Linux out moved on me Linux admin uh, who just recently became a fan of CentOS Rel. I often just think that CentOS is Rel without the ability to email someone and expect a fix soonish. Is there a huge difference between Rel and CentOS in stability? feature-wise, before or after stream. Um, I know my take on this is, you know, effectively, no. They're, I mean, they're based on the same binaries. Their uh, CentOS before this change was literally a rebuild of RHEL, right? That's right, yeah. Um, streams Which, changes that slightly, <laughs> but... Yeah, and, and you know, there's, there's this notion of binary compatibility that people talk about and mean different things depending on who you're talking to. Um, we we also used to talk about CentOS being bug for bug compatible with RHEL. That was another phrase that people used, um, and and that but those those situations are still the reality. If anything, with CentOS Stream, we're going to be closer to RHEL than than we were before because you're you you don't have the. So in the old days when RHEL was released, you'd had to wait weeks to months. 
mm-hmm. potentially three, four, five months to get the next release of CentOS because it was volunteer driven. Um, with CentOS Stream being a core part of the RHEL engineering process now, these two projects, the RHEL and CentOS, are effectively the same thing. And like I said before, Red Hat doesn't sell software. We sell the experience around the software. We shall sell the relationship. And so um, whereas your salesperson might might say that there are significant differences, um, that's going to be less the case going forward, even than it was in the past. So, Rich, let me ask you about the build process, because you can, we can make everybody can make fun of Gentoo, right? Like everybody can make fun of fairies. Like the Gen 2 guys are big into their compiler <laughs> flags and stuff like that. When when we were supporting the classic CentOS prior to December, did the team that was actually doing the rebuild from source have access to all of our procedures and all of the flags and all that other stuff that we internally used to ensure that they were building the exact same binaries? I'm not sure or if I'm allowed had to, to answer that it. question. I, well, I'd have to shoot if you, you can. No, but, but seriously, when... <laughs> When the CentOS team first came on board at Red Hat back in 2014, um, there was a firm wall between the two groups and they weren't allowed. I I don't even know what allowed means because I wasn't part of the team at the time, but they weren't allowed to talk to each other. And, you know, the reality is that if you're in the same building with people, you're going to have these conversations. And so that, that wall became more permeable over time. Um, so initially the answer was no, they didn't have access to that, but, but they're working on the same teams, sometimes on the same hardware and, and by late last year, yeah, they, they pretty much had access to these things because they were on the same engineering teams. Okay. Just a little curious because there's this assumption that the CentOS rebuilds and Alma and Rocky are exact you know, it's the exact same machine code that's coming out of our binaries. And being the nerd that I am and no, having some, had some of the adventures I have, I kind of doubt that. Yeah. But I'm, not yeah, trying right. to be, I'm not trying to spread FUD here. Not trying to do that. Sure. And, you know, this is, I alluded to this earlier, this notion of binary compatibility doesn't mean that if you run diff on the two things, you'll get nothing out. You know, they're, they're, not, they're not the same file. They just are an implementation of the same source code and they do the same things, but they're going to be different in some ways. It's just a, an artifact of how compilers work. And I don't pretend to understand how compilers work. Um, that's not my, my area, but, but uh, I, I don't, I don't think that that has ever been either the case or even particularly a goal. Okay. Right. Right. I mean, I remember a day when there were several, sort of CentOS-like rebuilds of of RHEL, right? There was yeah. one called White Box. White Box. Uh, Scientific There's... Linux that people will probably remember that only recently, uh, yeah. I guess they announced, it might be a year yeah. ago now, that they were they were going to stop rebuilding with when, when 8 came out. Yeah. Um, There's Chaos. A year ago. Yeah. Um, but uh, I... Springdale. I, Springdale right? is still active. Um, of course, uh, Oracle Linux is still active. Right. We don't talk about that. <laughs> they don't count to me. Anyway, I'm uh, sure I'm sure it's a fine uh, a fine platform for anyone. Show us on the doll where Larry Ellison hurts you, or anyone anyway, who wants yeah. to sell their soul to run a Linux distribution. <laughs> anyway, um, 
I, I'm not even sure where I was going with that. Oh, the, I'm, I'm sure there are there are not not necessarily intentional differences, but I'm sure there are differences in all of those that sure. you know the people packaging them probably thought they didn't even change. Right? Obviously, each of those had their own sort of specific uh, use cases and spins and packages yeah. included and whatnot. But I mean, like for example, the kernel, right? They could be built in a slightly different way, for example, on from one to the next, even though they thought they were identical. I just so it just kind of makes me wonder how close. And again, I'm not trying to spread fud. I'm just wondering from a nerd perspective exactly how close CentOS was, and how you know because people assumed it was exact, but from a from a so funny story at Merck. I'm gonna I'm gonna go off into an Uncle Mark so uh, an Uncle Mark uh, sit on the stump and tell you a tale. I was at Merck when we we would back when we would build production servers that touch drug discovery. They needed to be validated systems. You'd run this report on them called an IQOQ, and I forget what that means, but it's a pretty industry standard term. It's um, a report. It, but but it basically <laughs> said this system matches. You know this. The configuration is is this, and yeah. results on this hardware should be repeatable. Because with with drug with with experimental results, if your HPC cluster takes a set of data and spits out a result, and then the same set of data gets run through it again and it yeah. spits out a different result, the FDA is not amused. Right. Right. <laughs> so we actually got to the point where we were building our VMware environment. And some auditors at Merck got into their minds that if a server was built, a production server was on a specific hypervisor and it v-motioned off to a different hypervisor, that would invalidate the IQOQ and you'd need to rerun it. And wow. then we're like, no. So what we ended up doing is we ended up validating the process itself, showing that there was no change. We ran data sets. We migrated it. We ran the same data sets and they came back the same with the help of some of our buddies in, in basic research. And so we validated the process itself. So so this idea that you need this exact level of software on this exact hardware is sometimes a thing. Sure. And again, I suspect that the CentOS users were not really getting as exact an experience as they thought they were getting. Not that they were having a bad experience, but that it... That makes the argument against CentOS Stream a little less of a big deal in my head. And that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. And and that's that that's something sense? that's something that we hear from the scientific community. Um that that whether it's exactly the same as RHEL is not as important as whether they can reproduce their own results consistently across the lifetime of an experiment. So Right. A place like Oak Ridge or CERN that that sets up an experiment that's going to run for ten years, they want to make sure that 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 software yeah. platform is consistent across the lifetime of that experiment. And we don't want them to accidentally rip open an interdimensional gate, yeah, because that would yeah. be bad. There's movies about this. There's a fantastic <laughs> book series about that. Books it's about a it, it's a zombie series, and I forget what the name of it is now. Oh my god, I love it. It's such a dark zombie series. Um, not so much that you remember the name of it though oh i'm gonna find it i i don't remember <laughs> but i'm gonna look it up in kindle because it's amazing all right so i guess uh you know sort of one more talking point and we kind of danced around it already what as far as you can talk about anyway what's the sort of future of centos and centos stream so from where i sit 
my job is to to rebuild trust and a large yeah. part of that is is uh is more transparency so over the years the centos board has been a a, a shadowy group of people that conducted their business behind closed doors now those those board meetings are becoming more public um they're uh, available to our community that's one big thing so increasing transparency around our special interest group process um improving our documentation making our documentation something that people can contribute to rather than having it developed entirely within red hat um so that's all stuff on the community side um, so far as where the, the bits go, so as far as where the software goes, we've never really had an end to that because that all happened within Red Hat and we simply rebuilt what came out of Red Hat. Um, and what CentOS Stream enables is a way for people to contribute to that process. We talked about that earlier. So to me, those are the two things that I'm focusing on in the coming years is increased transparency in our government governance and community processes and increased transparency in the software development side of things. Um, so, so far as the roadmap for RHEL itself, I have no insight into that. Either that, yeah. that all gets decided elsewhere. Insight's right. a different product. <laughs> that it is. <laughs> all right. So this has been a great conversation. Mark or Jason, did you have any follow and like final thoughts before we wrap this up? No, I'm trying to, I apparently still, forgot my Amazon. The zombie answer. books. Yeah. Damn, I'm still looking for your zombie oh. book. Now he's oh, like, I have to go man. look at an actual thing. Do I have to go get my Kindle? Oh my word. <laughs> oh, hang on. I can do this. I you can, can do, do this. this technology. All right. So I guess that, I guess it's critical depending on whether or not Rich is sticking around. <laughs> watch, watch his uncle Mark Google's live on iron system yeah right that like that's never happened before we haven't we haven't uh, gone into live rabbit holes that involved a bunch of googling and i think uh, this will research. get me where i need to be um so while he's looking yeah. that up rich if people want to find you on social media or that youtube channel you talked about the uh, rising where... brian Keane. Oh, okay so dark we've i'm putting it in the chat the rising okay anyway so dark. social media it's a it it's right. it's a multiple part series. <laughs> to finish my statement, where can they do so? <laughs> so on on YouTube, we are at youtube.com slash the Centos Project. Okay. And Is it the Centos Project or the Centos Project? Exactly. <laughs> and uh, on on the Twitters, we're at Centos, and I'm on Twitter at R Bowen. Cool. And, and, uh, and is that where they can find those interviews that you alluded to earlier, the uh, the YouTube channel that you've mentioned there? Yeah, I believe that those are all there. Cool, cool. Look I know people thumbnails ask, of, Yeah, look for thumbnails of Rich hating his life. <laughs> um, Aranami <laughs> wants to know, Rich, what's your favorite April Fool's Day RFC? Wow. Um, <laughs> that's completely out of left field. You think it sure is. Uh, I, I think it was the uh, the remote control coffee maker RFCs, but uh, I don't know the number off the top of my head. So no one faults you for that. But those are real now. <laughs> <laughs> right. Personally, I like the evil bit. Evil bit uh, was evil bit. TCP was, over carrier pigeon was one of those, wasn't it? That was that one, because like that's that my one. favorite. Yeah, that's a good one. But I figure everybody says that, right? Yeah. 
Maybe I'm well, but the, the the evil the evil bit one is the best because it, it just makes firewalls so much it's they're yeah, completely it's, irrelevant. Just don't solves. let anything through that has the evil bit set and you're good. Now there's the uh the HTTP four one eight error code uh RFC where HTTP four one eight is I'm a teapot for some <laughs> unknown reason, but that was a good one. That one was that is one it, was implemented, I think. Yes. In a, yeah. in a teapot, like That's at MIT right. or something crazy. <laughs> all right. So, all right. So, apparently, uh, Tom Lemoncelli agrees with me on the avian carriers, <laughs> according to chat. 1149. All right. So, this has been great. Um, any thoughts before we go to the break? Well, just thank you for, for uh, the chat, and thank you for giving me a platform. It's good oh, talking absolutely. with you all. This has been great. It's been so weird to do a show while the sun is still up, and I didn't even—I—I I don't even have any lights in my room on. I still find the light. <laughs> it's weird. It's so weird. All right, we're gonna go to a break, folks, and uh, when we come back, um, I don't know if we've decided which co-hosts are gonna be here when we come back, but uh, we'll just—we'll leave it—we'll leave it to chance, and you can see when we get back. So I hope you guys stick with us, and we'll see you in a few. Are you a fan of the Iron Scissorman podcast? If you are, don't forget you can support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash ironscissorman. Or you can buy merchandise at teespring.com slash stores slash ironscissorman. And thank you. We have returned and Mark is dancing. I'm out of alcohol. I moved to the car, which one red hatter once described as carbonated water where someone yelled the name of a fruit at it in a room. So someone yelled, Key Lime! at this for a while until it slightly picked up the taste. But I like plain oh. seltzer, so... So that's that's exactly how they make LaCroix, huh? Or LaCroix. Slightly flavored seltzer is just fine by me. Slightly flavored seltzer. I just, when I want water, I just drink water. But I like seltzer. I'm even an I even like water, too. The tap. But I sometimes like the fizzies. Okay. I guess Don't I'll give judge you that. me. I'm not judging. All right, good. So that was judging. that was a fun show. I think, or not a, the show's not over yet. That was a fun interview. How's that? I I mean, you know, they're always fun. You know, yeah. we make no it absolutely, fun. absolutely. But yeah, Rich was a Rich was a neat guy, and I'm glad we were able to have a, a great discussion. I think we, I, whenever you're dealing with somebody who's attached to a hot piece of news, you always want to. You always want to make sure you try and do something a little bit different. Yeah. So hearing about hearing about some of his background was cool. And then some of the nerd stuff when we were talking about compiling and stuff like that and whether it's exact. I, that's fun to me. I I think some of the sent sent off stuff has been has been, you know, killed like dead horse. Yeah, right. There's really no reason to rehash some of the stuff that's been... If I want to rehash it, my wife and I will talk about it because rehashing's her favorite fucking sport sometimes. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there was our arbitrary curse once per episode. Yep, right. there you go. I don't know if that's enough to mark us uh, as explicit or that not. That makes us not kid-friendly. I suppose it is. I mean, maybe I'll just bleep it out later. <laughs> uh, don't bleep me. <laughs> okay, I'll try not to. All right, so uh, we're at the point of the show where we do some housekeeping. So uh, the first thing I'd like to do is thank our patrons. Yay! Um, I'm going to be completely honest. 
I didn't have time to get the full updated list, but I don't think it's changed since our last yeah, show. So I just copied it from our last show. Uh, so here it is. Patreon update. We got 21 patrons at about 104 a month. Maybe. Maybe. Are if you you're a new sure? Patreon, oh, we're right. so sorry. If you're, yeah, no, I didn't get any, not any notices of new patrons. That, oh, okay. that is a thing that I keep up on because oh, okay. every time we get a new patron, I send them a personalized thank you because I don't care if it's a dollar or $20 a month. Well, that's good of you. I appreciate you. Did I ever get my thank you from you? I don't think I did. But You probably got fine. one in person. Yeah. Aren't you lucky? I guess that counts. Not everybody gets them in person. No, that's you, true. You probably Especially did. not in these COVID times. Although the COVID times might be coming to a close, so that's cool. Yes, that's what we're looking forward to. Oh, anyway. Ar Aranami says it was super nice. Yeah, see? Only Uncle Mark didn't get one. But again, <laughs> to Nate's point, he probably thanked me in person. Probably. So. We're going to go with that. Yes, I absolutely did. I have a record of it somewhere. Some Over the rainbow. Anyway, why don't you read this the foggy list of thing Patreons, that is my brain. Right. So I'll shut up. So we got Aranami, Andrew, Tetro, Root is God, Bruce, Robert, Matt, David, Solemn, Trooper Ish, Linux Sys 666, Gimpy B, Mark with a K, Dementor, who, by the way, um, we talked about in our last show because he lives in Israel. And as we all know, Israel went through some tough times. He's still kicking. He's good. He's made it through. I guess there's a ceasefire now. Yeah, uh, we'll see how long that lasts. Well, it's a rough but... couple of weeks. I'm glad yeah. he's okay. He and his family are safe. I just wanted to update I people. Mean, on that. I grew up in Jersey, so I'm used to some shenanigans, but not like that. Yeah, rockets in the sky? That's not a thing I'm used to. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, John, the nice guy. Mark with a C, Julius, Andy, Jay, Charles, and our good old buddy, 22532. Two! Right at you, two. Man, if he ever stops being a patron, what are you going to do at the end of the list? I'm going to cry. Have that to say anymore. Well, who's the next? Who's the next to last person on the list? Uh, that would be Charles. I mean, I could bellow Charles in some way, but like two is like that. his own guy, man. I don't know. I'd have to think. I'd I'd have he to is, just chill for a while. He is our longest running patron. He's All been. The the, he was. Too. He he was actually our first patron. Well, they again. I keep saying he. I probably shouldn't do that. I don't really know. <laughs> do numbers have gender? We don't know. 22532 is our oldest patron, and that's much appreciated. 22532. Two, appreciate little, all of little you. Little Miss Shadow? I think, I think we... They, they may have come in as a patron before we had, like, 20 regular listeners. That's how early <laughs> they were. They were. Two, two should really have their own patron category. Yeah, right. Longest running Patreon. I don't know if, if I can do that with Patreon. Anyway, so that's our Patreon update. Uh, like I always say, if you want to support the show uh, by buying merch, you can do that on Teespring. Teespring.com slash stores slash Iron Sysadmin. You can get a t-shirt. There's mugs up there. There's like cell phone cases for the Galaxy S7 or something because I don't I don't <laughs> I don't see that Does as a real money maker anymore. Probably not. But that's that's what uh, that's Dude, can what I get a me. can I get a case for my iPhone six? Hey, did you see that? Yo, I know him. Look I've been in many There's... red hat calls with these. Uh, oh, God. Uzi. 
Uzi. That's Uzi. Now, Thank in you. my defense, I've been day drinking, which is one reason I'm not pronouncing <laughs> his name properly. And it was a double shot old fashioned. So, yeah. Yeah. Right. So um, I'm going to be useless tonight. Um, when we're probably going back six or seven years at this point, when I was a customer, uh, Uzi was my SA. That's how I know him. Uzi's and pretty probably awesome. how he knows about the show. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, he was in the Santos channel when I was advertising it. He yep. actually, he either gave us a thumbs up or a heart. I think it was yep. a heart. Yep. I was, I was hoping he would tune in. So if you, if you're actually watching, awesome. Thanks for tuning in. Hooray. Anyway. Or, as I would say, if you hit the button on the board. Oh yeah. Yay. All right. <laughs> All right. There's no new reviews. Um, that I did check before. The, uh, the show. I mean, I probably should have spent the time on the Patreon update instead of looking for reviews because we get so few new reviews anymore. Folks, go review the show. We like it. We like to hear Unless from you. Unless you leave a bad review telling me that I suck. Still bitter about that, are we? Mm, I'm trying to get past it. <laughs> My therapist done I'll work on that. Okay, cool. <sighs> I have a therapist at the moment. But... <laughs> <laughs> All right, so well, I have a therapist again. We'll work on that. House housekeeping out of the way. What kind of cool projects you got going on, Mark? So I got to be honest, I, I've kind of pivoted into summer mode. So since our last show, uh, I moved my son and daughter out of college. My son finished his freshman year at Stevens in Hoboken, New Jersey. My youngest daughter graduated with a perfect GPA from chemistry at Seton Hall. So she's Smarty McPants. Ah. Um, we actually were, we attended that graduation last week. Um, and my son and I went on a canoe trip over the weekend with our brand new venturing crew. And we only, uh, we only ended up in the water unintentionally once. <laughs> um, so that was fun. But as f you know, like, I, I feel like I've been like kind of busy, right? I know um, the feeling. What I have been doing is I've been playing Monster Hunter Rise on my Switch. My son picked that up on his Switch. We were playing a little bit when he was at college, but now that he's home, we can play in the same room. I'm trying to get him his his Hunter rank up a little bit because he's slacking compared to me. And then, obviously, Valheim is still gone, I think, pretty strong. I try and get on that periodically. You, um, Yeah, we were, the Viking we're playing game, last right? night, and you killed me with a tree. You know... <laughs> <laughs> had you had something to eat, you would have lived. Here's here's where you blame me for it, right? Yeah, you, well, you're right. I mean, it was yeah, it was my I own mistake. The I did chop out the tree in the, down, and I could have yelled at you to be careful out in the wilderness, and I had not eaten anything to up my hit point. Anybody who has never played Valheimer, like what? Why does eating matter? It matters. <laughs> it very much matters. <laughs> uh, is Rise any fun? Yes, Rise is fun because it removes some of the bullshit. Um, so in Monster Hunter World, you had to find the monster on the map. In Rise, it's it you can you can locate him with the icon up top. You hit the right stick to highlight one of the monsters, and usually the one you're hunting is the far right icon. And if you've never seen it before, it's a question mark, but it still appears on the map. So it removes that whole. 15 or 20 minutes of finding the trail and trying to find the monster. You get, you get into the fight a little quicker. Um, what you should do before engaging the monsters, there's these little spear birds spread throughout the map 
that can buff you. They can buff your attack. They can buff your hit points. They can buff your stamina. And depending on how good your armor and weapon are, you're gonna wanna you're gonna wanna grab some of those birds first. But there's a lot less tedium. Now, what I will say, er, I'm responding to Aranami's question. Yep. Uh, Monster Hunter is fundamentally about killing monsters and turning their parts into new armor and weapons. And there's RNG involved. It's a Japanese game. There is always going to be some sort of a grind, right? Yeah. So it's there's not but some of the tedium that was in monster hunter guild ult no monster hunter generations ultimate as well as world they they've made it they've taken some of that away and i i really like it it's a fun game it you can legitimately hop on for a half hour do a hunt and and then and then put it down cuz it's, it's it's funny a- how when when I was younger and had more time to devote to things like games, you really wanted those immersive games that sucked you in and you'd spend six hours at a, at a pop playing. And now I, I agree with you, right? It's a lot more convenient to have a game where I can just sit down and play for 15 minutes well, and walk away and still feel like I've actually done something wow. instead of just 15 minutes. A 15 minute window is probably not enough time to do anything other than browse armor and weapons and figure out what you want to build next. Yeah. But the other thing you can do is if you have a multi-hour period, you can do a series of hunts one after another. And and I generally, if I get a good session going, like an hour or two, I usually have ended up building a piece of equipment or two that I was going after. And, you know, you've always got other stuff going on. You got your meow scenarios collecting things for you. You've got uh uh yeah, there yeah, there is a I think I think there's a pretty good badass effect. I definitely tore, tear through things now with my better gear that threw me around like a rag doll before. So <laughs> um but uh, you got what you got to remember Aaron, I mean, I know the people who are listening to this on the podcast are like he's talking to himself, he's answering questions that I don't know. Um and it's I apologize bourbon. for that. Um in Monster Hunter, you're fighting mostly bosses, so they're they're all the, the monsters are always going to be able to kick your ass if you're not careful. You just as your gear gets better, there's more margin for error. Like the char the charge you failed to dodge that would have killed you might only knock off three quarters of your health, and you have time to drink a potion and be okay. That's but that's that's not a bug. That's a feature. That's part of the series. But I think Rise is excellent. I think it it's back on a handheld and some of the quality of life improvements that were part of world are now in it. And some of the BS is gone, like the whole 15 to 20 minutes of trying to just find the stupid monster you're hunting at the beginning of the hunt. I tried to play world again because it's gorgeous on my machine. And I'm like, this is so tedious. (laughs) So, yeah. But I'm impatient. Uh, I also picked up um, the remastered Mass Effect on PS4, which I I got off with a strong start, and then I got to the Mako, and I'm like, I hate the Mako. I never played Mass Effect 1. Uh, My sister now hates me because it's the first in the series, so you're not supposed to put the one after it. I never played the original Mass Effect, (laughs) except for like part of one mission. 
And people always bitched about this six-wheeled Mako vehicle, and now I understand their complaints. So what I might end up doing is switching it to story mode just to get through this stupid Mako mission. I don't think I've ever played Mass Effect. It's a fun game. Very Which makes good me feel stuff. bad for saying that because I hear it was so, a really popular game. Yeah, third-person tactical um, cover-based combat, and it's a great science fiction story. Hmm. Uh, That's something I would probably enjoy. I'm on a Facebook hiatus. I finally couldn't take the anti-vax morons anymore. And I so was through getting... the whole, like through the political drama, through the pandemic, through everything. It all built up eventually. Like it finally caught up to you? Is that it? It's like that plutonium sample that Rich had in his basement at his college. <laughs> the radiation eventually builds up and kills you. Right. I just finally snapped. I'm like, you know what? This crap is making me angry. Um... I'm mm -hmm. finding myself obsessing. I'm making smart ass comments. I'm waiting to see how people respond. And, you know, you've talked about the social dilemma and how we're, we're manipulated. And I'm, and I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to take a break for a while. Yep. And while I yep. miss Charles Marshall's awesome memes and I miss some of the stuff, I'm just like, I, I, I now I did can, hop, uh... I did hop on to do a job posting. Yeah. Maybe you can get him to just send you the memes through Google Chat or something. I don't see why that would be a problem. Chuck should probably have his own G-Chat channel where he just does, you know, Uncle Chuck's memes. There you go. Totally. I, we're going to make that happen. Yeah, we got to make that happen. But one other thing I'm doing is I've been toying with this idea of unbranded technical talks. And by unbranded, I mean not Red Hat branded. Like Uncle, Uncle Mark, Mark Tech branded. Talks. Yeah. And I'm thinking of doing like one that's based on C groups, like general Linux performance. But I've also been toying around with the idea of a 3D printing primer where I walk a novice completely through the entire process saying, this is what you're getting into. Yeah, right. And that can be a lot of fun, I think. <laughs> so don't, don't buy a 3D printer expecting it to work like a paper printer, which I've right, had, you right. know. There is no file to print. evolve, right? Or whatever they <laughs> printers yeah. have evolved. That over. I should probably name the presentation. Where's file print? Yeah, right. You no, know? but right. so I, I'm toying what that would look like. I'd, and I, it wouldn't be live. I'd record it using using Streamlabs and then edit it together. You know, screen. You know, showing the screens on my Fedora machine. Yeah, I. I but I, I'm I'm figuring out what that looks like. Yeah. All right. That, that relates very closely to what I was going to chat about. And, and I what's guess, that? So, so what first that, of all, Nathaniel? what do you, what do you, what do you use for a slicer? What program do you use? I use Cura on Fedora. Okay. I was using Cura and it's great, right? Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to knock Cura, but um, our, our, our friend and coworker, Josh, uh, he's got a Prusa, if that's how you pronounce it. I don't know um, how you pronounce it. Printer? And he said they have their own slicer. And I thought, ah, whatever, right? The slicer that came with the printer, that can't be any good, right? And I thought, you know, I was having some trouble with supports on something I was trying to get printed. And I saw just like by, I think he showed me something he was printing and the supports looked completely different, right? Like nothing I'd ever seen come out of Like uh, nothing of I've ever seen. So I thought, you know, I'm going to give this thing a try. And I got to say that the Prusa slicer is actually really good. Like, it's really... I would say that it is, like, a good alternative to Cura. Like, if you're having trouble with something in Cura, maybe Prusa will, or Prusa slicer will, will solve the problem. I've used it for a couple prints now, 
And That's I cool. just I, the UI is nice, and the supports are a little different, and the way it presents stuff is different, and the the sort of library of built-in materials, material settings is a little more. Uh, I don't know. It just feels a little more polished than Cura. Cura was great. Don't get me wrong, but um, I don't know if if uh, if you're curious about it, give it a try. It's actually pretty nice. So but most that's... Of, yeah, most of my slicer problems are self-inflicted when I forget about things like gravity. Yeah, right. But you know, <laughs> I, I've always been able to tweak my I've always been able to tweak my settings in Cura successfully. But if I ever get stuck, that's good yeah. to know. Yeah, yeah. I was really when I was printing with PLA, uh, Cura always worked really well. Ew, but but you didn't I, print with PLA. But... I had okay. trouble. I had trouble with PETG on a couple of prints. And I decided to try, um, okay. decided to try the Prusa slicer, and it, it worked pretty well. So maybe going forward, it'll be that Cura is what I use for PLA, and Prusa is what I use for. Well, uh, and the thing is, um, the thing is, uh, you can use. You're not bound, yeah, to slicers, right? Absolutely. You can use the slicer for the Absolutely. material. If it, I just I'm pure PLA at this point because I haven't heard a compelling reason to screw with anything else, and I own a lot of spools of PLA. Oh yeah, no, I'm. It's in fact the thing I'm printing right now, which is actually what I was going to talk about in chat. I'm printing in PLA only, or not not in PLA. Yeah, PLA only because the uh, the guy who designed it printed it in PLA, and um, well, the thing I'm printing. Is and put a link. There's a link to it in the the notes for the I show. I followed the link, but I closed it already. It's I'm this sure. like there. Well, here I have I have one of the pieces right here. It's not it's not going to LED wall lamp. Made yeah, it's a little LED wall thing, right? And they're all these little hexagonal boxes that you run LEDs through, and they're programmable LEDs. Are they supposed to be somewhat translucent? Well, hold on, that's what I'm getting to, right? This is the one that houses the controller and the power supply, which is why it is not transparent, right? The all of the other hex pieces are going to look just like this, except the front is white, and it's it's supposed to be thin enough that the light from the LED comes through the plastic, right through the through the PLA. And what I didn't want to do was print it in PETG, which is a different, you know, polymer, right, a different material, and mm -hmm. not have it be transparent enough. So instead, I'm doing it in PLA because that's what he did. That's what the guy who designed it did it in. So, but yeah, that's what I'm, that's what I'm printing. So this space behind me, beneath the hat, beneath mm -hmm. the fedora, that's where I'm hoping to put the thing if it fits. Right. So this is about the size of one. They're, they're about 10 and a half centimeters across. Right. And then yeah. there's a, there's like a prescribed pattern that he wants you to put it in. I may or may not use the pattern that, that, uh, Negative he, ghost rider, the pattern is full. Yeah, right. So, uh, but you see there's like these openings on the different pieces and that's to match up with the pattern so you have a place to put the the LEDs through. So I may play around with that. I may just do it in the same pattern that he designed it in. Because so whatever. I just had a moment. So that quote I just did was from Top Gun, Negative yeah. Ghost Rider, the pattern is full, which is what the tower always tells Maverick when he wants to do a, when he wants to buzz the tower. Right. And we've always just said it, but with all the flight simming and stuff I've been doing, I actually friggin' know what it means now. I just, I just had one of those aha moments. I legitimately <laughs> so know what it means. Well, the pattern is essentially a, it's literally a pattern. You fly to approach an airport. Okay. It's got different segments to it. And it's a way to keep aircraft, even in an uncontrolled airspace to give a little bit of discipline to it. 
And it basically means there's not enough room for you to safely enter the pattern to do this flyby. Like we've already got aircraft moving, moving into place. And if you enter the pattern, you'll cause an unsafe condition. I get it. Think of it as like, think of it as like exit ramps and stuff for the highway. The pattern basically is the route you take to take off or land from an airport. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Maybe it Danger sounds... and does make my head clearer. Flight simulator in <laughs> VR is spectacular. <laughs> yeah, I'd imagine. Aranami again. I'd imagine I that it would we be, We weren't right? flying for real. Uh, let me get the, uh, let me pull the album. We, um, my, do my friend Rod's a commercial pilot in his real life, but he owns a, he owns an SR-22, a Cirrus, which is one of the airplanes in flight simulator. So I have flown it in the simulator, but we, he took us up in it in real life last week. That's cool. And it was, it was as cool as you think it would be. Let me grab the He album. didn't let you pilot it though, did he? I got to control it a little bit. Nice. Yeah, just a little bit. There we go. We're just gonna, we're just gonna create this link. We're going to create the link. We're going to copy the link, and I'm going to throw it in the Twitch chat. There we go. Cool. From our flight. We flew from uh, Queen. We flew basically right around from Allentown to uh, Manhattan because it's a fast airplane. Wow. That's cool. And then back again. Yeah. Is this like a little like 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 prop driven thing or a little uh, it's a four seater? It's it but it's a pretty high end. Like it's a Mercedes. Ver it's like a Mercedes private airplane. That kind That's of level. That's pretty cool. That's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah. It you cruises got, at about 160 knots. You got cool. Friends, which is about, probably. which is a lot of miles per hour. You got, you got friends that fly airplanes. You got friends that run podcasts. You're a connected guy. Let's see. 160 <laughs> knots in miles per hour. What is that? Fast. I'm asking duck, duck, go about 180 miles per hour. Oh, yeah, that's fast. New Jersey's not very big at 184 miles per hour. I'm just throwing that not. out there. Yeah, I guess not. All right. So, yeah, that's what I'm working on. Hopefully in the coming weeks. I don't think it'll be before our next show, but you'll see a cool uh, pattern of LEDs behind me. Um, hopefully controlled by Home Assistant, not just a switch like, you know, anything Neander Neanderthal might use to control it. Like some <laughs> stupid Neanderthal would use. <laughs> These are out of order. This is weird. Yeah. Well, that's not cool. A little. Well, they're not totally out of order, but they're a it's little terrible. out of order. Fix it. Make it all in order. I can't make it all in order. <laughs> no, it's just weird that there's some of the some of the pictures are like up top from when we're in the air. Anyway, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. All right. So, yeah, I think we're so, done with chat. We can I talk about the news now. Chat. We can. All right. So we're going to hit that purple button. Oh, wait, I have a new button. Ooh, what's the button do? Push the button, Frank. Do you recognize that that soundbite? I think. It's from Mystery Science Theater 3000. I'll probably get some sort of a takedown notice for using it. But... Stupid YouTube, no doubt. Anyway, here we go. All right, so it's time for the news. Um, 
Rich was kind enough to remind us that there's apparently some craziness going on around Freenode at the moment, but neither Mark nor I know enough about it to talk intelligently. So I mean, maybe I could, once I could rant unintelligibly and pretend I know what I'm talking about, but yeah, I'm not yeah, we can that. we can be like Fox News then. Um, but my 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 thought is that maybe by the next time we record, the whole thing will have settled, and maybe we'll be able to report on it intelligently. Right? Or will it be news anymore? And it might not be said, news. This then. is said. This is. Internet Relay Chat, IRC. So I don't even know. Like, I I guess our listeners probably probably make more use of it than the average Joe. Yeah. But but IRC is sometimes looked at as an old technology. But essentially, this dude dude bought the domain name, which he said, well, now that gives me ownership of the entire network. And because IRC is distributed and community-owned, a lot of people basically effed off and made a new irc top level network that were not right. under that wasn't under his domain anymore because you're they're not trapped in a proprietary chat solution indeed like which is cool that's actually a benefit but there's a lot the of page. because red hat a lot red hatters do a lot of uh oh well there you go charles you Freenode stuck ads on the main page, then kicked everyone who complained. And yep. right, because because IRC again is is durable Took and over their channels yep. and not centralized. <laughs> uh, communities moved to uh, move to um, a different new network. Yeah, because you can do that. Yep. Like if if Google does something stupid, you're still stuck on GChat. If Microsoft yep. does something stupid, you're still stuck on. Whatever the hell it is nowadays. Is it Skype? Is it who the hell knows? I don't know. <laughs> Microsoft chat. We'll just call Microsoft it Microsoft chat, right. Yeah. So um yeah, I figure uh, we'll we'll learn the situation a little more. See, it looks like Charles I knows all about it. about it a little bit already. If only Charles had joined the show today, then he if could only. have talked about it. There's a couple of if onlys here. If but only. we're glad he's listening. Yeah, absolutely. Or watching or whatever. So anyway, my uh, first news article for tonight is unsurprisingly about a thing that I read about related to Google. And this is just, you know, like another one of those things. Is that this where about Google is... new emoticons or something? Nope. Where Google is doing a thing that, uh, well, I mean, it really fits into the discussion or the thing you were just saying about how if, if Google does something with Gchat, um, you're stuck with it, right? Well, in this case, it's if you have a Google Nest hub which I have, right? They're pushing a new operating system out to it. It's called uh, Fuchsia. I don't know why it's called Fuchsia, but it's called Fuchsia. Um, Anyway, uh, apparently they've been working on this since like 2016. Okay. There there was an announcement back in 2016 that uh, they're working on their own operating system. This is not a Linux-based operating system. It's not Android-based, which I believe is what it's currently running, the Nest Hub, that is. Now, if you don't know what the Nest Hub is, it's basically a smart display from uh, from Google. It was originally called the Google Home Hub, but when they bought Nest and they rebranded stuff, they rebranded it to the Nest Hub. Um, but uh, supposedly, it's going to do everything that your existing Nest Hub does. Um, and it's so they, they said to most users, it'll simply be you know, like a firmware update, and you won't even notice the difference. So what's the point? Like, why are they changing it? I don't know. You know, I don't know what Mm. what the reasoning is uh, behind why they need to change it, if it's going to work exactly the same. 
Does it position these devices in some way that makes more sense for the future? Is it something that we're all going to hate in a year? I don't know. But I saw it and I thought it was interesting. And it's a very Google thing to do. Uh, basically changing the underlying operation of your device without even telling you about it. So uh, that's coming. There's very amusing conspiracy nonsense in the comments already. Of course there is. It's it, what is it going is it going to start spying on us now? Is that the conspiracy? I don't know. But Fuchsia does seem to be open source, so that mitigates a lot of some of the concerns that I'm reading yes. that ignorant people don't understand. Yep. It did say that it was open source. Sorry yeah, for whatever. Not, not highlighting that. All right. Yeah, so I don't know if this is like the future of their mobile devices as well. Who knows? Are they moving? Are they going to move away from Android, or is this like their new embedded thing? I don't know. Maybe. I guess we'll find out. But yeah, if you have one, you may notice. You may not. I don't know. Oh, that was from uh, The Verge, by the way. I mm -hmm. sometimes forget to say that. The next one I think you added, wasn't it? For from I Hackaday? did, but this is something that I think JSCAR dropped in one of the channels we share. This okay. is from Hackaday. Which has some really cool edgy icons on the screen, so you know that they're computer people. They, yeah, they do. It's that and one. they, they, the the opening sentence is just a little bit biased. I'm going to tell you, <laughs> whether you own any Amazon surveillance devices or not, we know how much yeah. you value your privacy. Yep. So apparently, Amazon is going to enable this service called Amazon Sidewalk, mm -hmm. which is enabled by default. And this mm -hmm. is apparently a service that has devices talk to one another. They share connectivity using Bluetooth and I guess LoRa. And mm -hmm. I don't know it, what LoRa is. I don't yeah. know what it is either. But essentially what these devices do is they share connectivity to try and improve a, a, a Wi-Fi network so that that kid walking by with his crapple phone outside of your house, mm -hmm. suddenly he's got a better network. Right. So I get the concept, right? They basically want to sort of enable Wi-Fi like access to like the world. Right. So if you're in a, a, a modern ish area where there are a lot of houses, urban ish, maybe is the word I'm looking for. Mm. Uh, you should be able to get connectivity from these devices. Now, this raises a couple questions for me. Um, if you're in an urban area, you probably already have cell service. So why does that matter? Um, if you're in an area where you don't have cell coverage, I guess it kind of makes sense. It's kind of it's kind of neat. Uh, didn't Facebook try to do something like this with like balloons or something at one point where they were trying to give access to areas that, that, that didn't have internet service? Um, but the concept that basically my device. Now, I don't own any Amazon Alexa devices, but if I did, uh, the concept that my device is suddenly going to be providing internet access to just random folks walking down the, the street. And these are devices like security cameras, right? A floodlight, the Ring floodlight cam, the Ring spotlight cam wired, the Ring spotlight cam mount, the Echo, the Echo Dot, the Echo with clock in it, right? So these are just like... They're devices you would not expect to be this smart, is what I'm getting at. Yeah. Right. And I think I think what this is is this is kind of, it's it's an interesting engineering design to try and improve throughput reliability, whatever. But yeah, it's a little bit tone deaf to folk that um, 
you know, I don't get that people don't like things that are not done with their consent. Yeah. And I think the average, you know, the idea that that grandma or even just regular people are going to know to disable this functionality right. is is a little uh, it's a little it's it, it's kind of rude, actually, because most people don't. Thirsty Gnomes in our chat says Xfinity routers have this enabled by default. Um, I believe I could be wrong, but I think my local ISP does a similar thing uh, where they have this this Wi-Fi access on by default that external users of their service can use, can basically access through your Wi-Fi through their service, right, to get onto the internet. And while I don't love that, I think it is still slightly different. Right. Well, can you turn it off, though? Well, so that right? I don't know. Because if you can turn it off, that helps. If it's something you don't have a choice about. Yeah. Then so in, that's in my case, I don't awful. use I usually usually w whatever ISP I'm with. Um, I take the the connecting device, whether it's a cable modem or a DSL modem or whatever, and I put it in bridge mode and then I put my own gear behind it. So I'm not using their Wi-Fi. I'm not using any of their integrated stuff. So. Um, in that sort of case, you know, I'd imagine that would turn it off. I don't know for sure. Um, but in, in the case of these Amazon devices, right, this is, this is my floodlight with camera built in, right? It's a smart floodlight that I can use as a security device, as a security camera, right? Why in the world is that all of a sudden broadcasting an SSID so that Amazon can get people onto the internet through my ISP? Yeah. That I don't like that. No, no. And the fact that you're opted in by default, I like that even less. Like if I want to be kind and turn that on, fine. Hell, I have a guest network that I've got Emrichter, which needs a password, and I have Emrichter Guest, which doesn't. Now Emrichter yeah. Guest on my router, the the um my router, which I forget the hell router it is. It's a pretty good one though. Actually, if you're on the guest network, you can't can't talk to other devices on that same network. Yep. It it isolates you. Yeah. So um, in my case, I've got a dual radio uh, Wi-Fi as well, and I have a guest network, and that guest network is still password protected. Not because I don't want people on it, but because or not because I don't want people to use my Wi-Fi, but because I don't want random Joe Schmo standing out on the street to use my Wi-Fi. Right? Because... Eh, I've never worried about that. Yeah, well... I don't know. And it's not me trying to be mean. It's just me trying to make sure that random Joe Schmo isn't connected to my network and trying to do anything nasty. Not that I can really expect well, that my neighbors would be doing that. Well, the fact that a device that, but... is isolated from every other device on the guest network, yeah, for me, right. I think eliminates right. some of that. Right. But... Asus. I have an Asus router. Yeah, the, the idea that my floodlight would be doing this, to me, that changes the conversation. And right, the fact and I set it up intentional to have yeah, a guest network with no password. The fact, the fact that it's a feature that I did not purchase the device to do, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you buy a Wi-Fi router or when you, connect, or when you buy uh, internet service from Xfinity, I would imagine that there's something where they say, oh, by the way, uh, you know, your device may be broadcasting this other SSID that other Xfinity users can use to get onto the internet. 
I bought a floodlight. I didn't buy a floodlight. I'm using this as an example. I bought a floodlight with a camera in it because I want to be able to use a floodlight with a camera in it. Not so that I can provide Wi-Fi access to people, you know, walking up and down the street without my permission. Now, you could argue, right. no, no, we have your permission. You opted in because this little button says that... Ouch, I just punched my desk because I'm getting too animated. Uh, because this little toggle in here says that we have your permission. Well... Not if I didn't know. Not if I didn't right. know I had to turn that off. That's And, that's and not... nobody reads the EULAs, so you right. can't even hide behind that. Right, right. So, you know, as pointed as as they, this article is written, Hackaday is a pretty cool site. They, um, if you're, Mark, if you're not familiar with Hackaday, they usually share a bunch of cool electrical projects and whatever. Yeah, like, no, it's cool. Like I don't have a problem stuff. with it. It just, it was clear what the, what their, what their, uh, perspective was going to be on yeah. it from yep. the very beginning which i'm okay yep. with people are yep. allowed to have a bias yep people yep. are allowed to editorialize i yeah and yeah. hackaday isn't exactly a news site right not in the traditional sense so you know whatever they can get away with this i think so what's going on with fail to ban so this i only included because it we it came up in chat on our our uh oh wait where's the, where's the button switch to the other panel Discord community. Um, <laughs> so this is fail to ban. If you're not familiar with fail to ban is a tool that you can use to do things like look for bad behavior on your systems and block those connections. Sure. Right. So, you know, somebody's trying to DDoS you or somebody's connecting to a port you don't want them to or whatever. Right. And then mm -hmm. this is supposed to automatically ban those people. Right, right. Because they're obviously the doing they're doing bad things, or trying to do bad things, or they're probing to try to do bad things. Um, and really, the only reason I included this is just out of irony. Apparently, their wiki has been overthrown by not overthrown, but has been uh, attacked by spammers. Right. Well, that's unfortunate. So, so people are apparently creating accounts on their wiki and posting spammy comments, and because of that. Fail to ban's wiki no longer allows registration. And if you want to register for an account on their wiki in order to, I don't know, peruse or edit their documentation or whatever it is that's on the fail to ban wiki, uh, you now have to contact them in a separate channel and say, hey, can I have an account? And the only reason I think this is ironic is because they're a tool that's meant to block bad behavior. No, I get the irony. <laughs> they're having trouble with it. I get it. Nothing against fail to ban. It's a great tool. Um, and I, I really feel for them because spam is one of the biggest things that a website or email administrator have to fight. And really, it doesn't stop there. Any kind of community, any kind of presence on the Internet. The instant server on the Internet, the, the blocks of IP addresses coming from, and I'm sorry if it sounds like mean, the blocks of IP attacks coming from both Russia and China are insane. Oh, I, absolutely. You know? Yeah, if you, I, I did a test once for an article I was written or writing. Um, I, I stood up. I was written. I, yeah, I stood up an AWS instance and left the firewall off just to see how long it would take for people to start attacking SSH, and it was less than an hour. I'm surprised right? it went an hour. I didn't, I didn't look at where they were coming from because, to be honest, I don't care. Um, but yeah. I had, I had to look because I, I needed to know. Granted, I just had, I was curious. Granted. That's in AWS's IP space, and I guarantee people are probing that IP space twenty four seven. I had the same thing happen to me when I stood up 
a VM and just put it in my DMZ here in friggin' Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Oh yeah, yeah, it'll happen the pretty exact quickly same to any behavior. IP. Yeah, not not in AWS. Yeah. So. Anyway, that's all the news we had for tonight. Um, today, I guess today. it's almost tonight. It's almost tonight. It's almost five. Yeah. In fact, it yeah. is five. It's five oh three. Does that does that constitute evening or is that late afternoon still? I'm not sure. Where's uh, Where's the divide? I I I'm I think once you hit five, you're into the evening. I think so. The end of the workday is considered it's, evening. It's now we're in the dinner time window for me. But I right. tend so to it's not like evening, eating. It's dinner time. I like eating earlier. Like five thirty to me is the perfect dinner time. Okay. Well, you're not going to be late for dinner tonight because I think we've actually I'm not we so finished at four o'clock is dinner time. <laughs> That I'm not even going to go into it. <laughs> Early bird special. <laughs> All right. Anyway, uh, we actually thing. somehow hit that this show is not going to be two hours long. I, I don't know how we did that. Unless you keep talking. Maybe doing it earlier in the day is the is the key. From now, that's it. From now on, we're going to have to do the show at three p.m. <laughs> hmm. Anyway, that's realistic. Folks, uh, if you tuned in for this live, thank you for watching. If you're listening to us afterward or watching after afterward, thank you for checking out the Iron Sizzabin podcast. If you want to watch us live, generally we record at 7 p.m. Eastern on the second and fourth Thursday of every month, uh, unless life gets in the way, which it unfortunately does from time to time. Um, if you want to join our community, the one I was just talking about, the Discord, Discord. community. Um, you can do so by going to ironsystemin.com and there's a link in the menus at the top there to join the community. It'll take you right to the Discord uh, invite link. Uh, if you want to follow us on social media, you can find the Iron System In podcast on both Twitter and Facebook. My space, my space, my space. I don't my think you space. can. Can you even still make a MySpace account? Let's find out. I remember way back when they switched to like a music platform. MySpace.com? What, what do we get at MySpace.com? I think it still exists, but it's a different it's a different world now. It's not like the yeah. user spaces of old. Anyway, if you want to watch us live, sorry, uh, you almost think it would be late at night, but it's not. It's only 5 p.m. Uh, if you want to watch us live, you can do so on, on YouTube, youtube.com slash Iron System and Podcast or twitch.tv slash Iron System and Podcast. Uh, and I think that's all the stuff I wanted to get through. Oh, if you want to support the show via Patreon, patreon.com slash ironsysadmin, or like I said, you can go buy yourself a t-shirt or something on Teespring. The link is in the notes for this show. So what's the story, Mark? What's, uh, what's MySpace looking like? MySpace looks like there are people on it, but it does look like it, it does look like it's kind of pivoted towards music. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we're talking like 10 years ago because I, I was a myspace user then and they're like oh we're changing the the platform or whatever and at that point all of my friends had moved to facebook so i just deleted my account mm. oh it's 11 p.m in norway no i'm so sleepy because i day drank so i'm sleepy on aranami's behalf that's possible no good, right. sh good show though yeah so that is it. Thank you, folks, for watching. And as soon as I find the right uh, scene to move us to in OBS, uh, we're going to take it out. So we'll see you again in two weeks, folks. Have a good one. Keep rocking.